0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's October 1900, and spring is a month old in southern Africa. Some of the mountains in Basutoland still have their snowy caps, but the temperatures are already climbing up to 30 degrees centigrade in other parts of the region. In Cape Town, the governor of the Cape, Sir Alfred Milner, was completely unconvinced by Lord Robert's assertion that the war was technically over. The spring had come, but what was actually happening was that it had breathed new life into the Boers. For some, they reckoned this war was only just beginning. Valley after valley of the southwestern Transvaal, for example, had slipped back under the control of Boer General Kuerstallare. He was back in his happy hunting ground, snapping up convoys, swallowing prisoners. A swirling cloud on the horizon the size of a dynamited train, as Thomas Pakenham describes it. At the epicentre of this miniature cyclone was Delaray, and Louis Boerter had requested all commanders to meet in the Swatrukhens Ridge, close to where Delaray was at the end of October. That was west of the capital, Pretoria. It's a long line of steep hills that afforded a view across the flats of the Transvaal. Meanwhile, Louis Boerter remained active to the east of the capital. The fact that the Boer leadership could move relatively easily belies Lord Roberts' bombastic tendency to write off what he regarded as a savage bunch of bandits. The curling smoke in the distance was not limited to British trains being blown up. Roberts' command for increasingly tough action against Boers, including the destruction of their farms, had begun in earnest. We heard last week how this decision to target civilians had led immediately to an escalation of the number of Boers who returned to the commandos despite taking an oath of neutrality. The debate about this moment in the war has literally continued to this day with biased views on both sides. Whatever your views about who did what to whom and when, the effect of the farm burnings caused militancy to increase on the part of the Boers. Partisan activity increased rather than decreased the more the British burned poor property. Like the Germans discovered when they overran parts of the Soviet Union in 1941, men and women who first welcomed them later cut their throats after the SS and other political divisions targeted civilians for ethnic cleansing. The partisans in the Second World War caused grave problems for the German army as its lines of communications grew longer, and so too 40 years earlier when the British tried to enforce strict policies that ended up with civilians suffering after their all-important railway network was bombed repeatedly. Winning hearts and minds remains a core tool in warfare. But in the midst of carnage, when limbs are blown off and blood-soaked uniforms are buried along with bodies, retaining a sense of civilization is impossible. Lord Roberts had indicated that the British army would win this war by any means necessary, and in his famous proclamation, which he'd issued in September, there was an ominous paragraph which read, The war is degenerating and has degenerated into operations carried out in an irregular and irresponsible manner by small and, in very many cases, insignificant bodies of men. So Robert set out new measures to curb their activities, which he hoped would be so ruinous to the Boers that they'd stop their guerrilla war and go home. The longer the war lasted, the worse these measures would become. And ironically, radicalized young men still further as they returned to their blasted homesteads to nothing. They'd been raised to the ground and suddenly had everything to die for. Revenge is a cruel taskmaster. In other words, more farms and harvests would be raised and from September the incidence of farm burning soared. And as General Christian Wet had noted in our previous podcast, often these acts of destruction were random, not actually linked to Boer sabotage, but merely acts of revenge by individual British officers. Martin Bossenbrook writes about this in his 2013 history entitled The Boer War. Lord Roberts was trying every trick in the book to end the guerrilla campaign. In one instance, it even involved the destruction of a rock can. This was a symbolic structure that he earmarked for destruction because it meant so much to the Boers. In 1880, Wim Paul Kruger, the president of the Transvaal, had overseen a large cairn of stones erected in the town centre of Krugersdorp to the west of Johannesburg, named after him. It means Kruger's Town. As I said, this cairn was revered by the Boers. It was erected as a symbol of resistance to the British. As long as the stones remained in place, The Transvaal's independence was secured, or so the Boer narrative went. Roberts had heard of this narrative, so naturally he ordered the cairn of stones removed. Beginning on the night of the 16th of September, the stones were chipped, packed in flower bags, and sent by train to Johannesburg. From there, they disappeared. As with Urban and other myths, these stones became a subject for many a story. Some say they were taken to the port of Durban and thrown into the Indian Ocean. Others say they were dumped from a railway bridge at Vereniging into the mighty Val River. Despite this symbolic annihilation, the guerrilla war gained traction and the Boers did not falter. Not everyone approved of Lord Roberts' new iron-fisted repression. Just as there were many British officers who extended the burnings to wide-ranging revenge attacks on Boer civilians, there were others who expressed reservations to Roberts directly. One of these was the British governor of the Cape, Lord Milner. He was only doing so because he was terrified that the Cape Afrikaners, who had vacillated throughout this war, might actually rise up in revolt when they heard of the Boer women and children becoming victims of this increasingly violent and bitter war. Milner wrote to Roberts in point form, saying he wasn't against the destruction of farms as a punitive measure, but he was totally against demolishing entire districts for no purpose other than to render them useless to the enemy. Milner said this was going too far and stated it was one, barbarous and two, ineffectual. You can imagine Milner's PowerPoint presentation had computers existed at this time. Milner warned that the farm burnings meant more homeless people swelling the ranks of what he called the army of desperadoes roaming the country, which is our object to reduce. He wanted hearts and minds won over, not run over. Roberts, of course, ignored these words of warning, even as reports grew of arbitrary destruction and blatant looting, which followed his iron fist orders. Small units far away from the eyes and ears of reporters and generals indulged in a little retribution, and civilians were the targets. The major problem, as we heard last week, was that the Boers, who actually had sworn oaths of neutrality, were now caught in a crossfire, and the British were doing virtually nothing to protect these men and women. Their own people were attacking them and looting, and later the British units would arrive, blame these neutrals for providing support to the passing commandos, and then set fire to their crops or blow up their homes, despite their protests and paperwork. The British finally responded to complaints that they were doing nothing. For example, they set up special safe camps in the vicinity of British garrisons, where neutral Boers could graze their cattle. The first of these refugee camps were set up in Bloemfontein, Kruinstadt and Pretoria in late September 1900. And so began what was eventually to become the biggest public relations disaster for the British in this war – the concentration camps. These all started in mid-September in the Eastern Transvaal. The wholesale destruction of farms and property led to thousands of women and children being cast onto the felt. The British ran into the first large group of these refugees near Barberton on the Swaziland border in mid-September 1900. Troops chasing Louis Boutte's commando found 2,800 women and children bunched together with ample supplies of food but no men. New arrangements had to be made for these refugees. The solution was obvious. Several of the existing grazing camps for the men known as hands-offers or hands-uppers or those who had surrendered were now to be converted into tented camps. The solution was simple. Why not move the women and children into these camps? They could kill two birds with one stone. Although there was a real problem with this idea beyond the health issue, which eventually led to tens of thousands dying. It was the fact that these two groups, the hands-offers and the refugees, hated each other viscerally. The women and children of the men still fighting looked upon those who surrendered and who grazed their animals in the British-controlled areas as sellouts, cowards. The hens zoppers, in turn, looked upon the refugees as ruffians and vagabonds, invaders of their land, lunatics fighting when it was obvious defeat was inevitable. The bitter animosity between the two didn't interest Roberts. On the twenty ninth of September, a few days before his sixty ninth birthday, London offered him the position of Commander in Chief of the entire British Army, not just in Africa. He accepted and became great and basked in his own glory. Basking in his own glory thousands of kilometres away in England was the young Winston Churchill. The general election of October 1900 was under way. It would take a month for all voting to conclude, and one of the first constituencies to vote, or to be contested, was Oldham. The Khaki election, as it became known, was the first of many to be given this title. The phrase Khaki election now means a poll held during a war, at least in the UK. So, the big day for Winston Churchill was on the 1st of October when 25,000 voters would decide his fate as a politician. There were two seats to be won in Oldham, and Churchill and another Conservative were standing against two Liberals. Churchill had lost the previous election 18 months earlier, but since then he had become a war hero. Captured, then escaped, his story preceded him. He was driven in an open-topped Landau to the Theatre Royal in Oldham, where an excited crowd waited for him. Churchill gave what is called a dazzling account of his escape from the Boer prison and his subsequent adventures, culminating in the episode of his confinement in a coal mine. You'll remember all of this from earlier podcasts. Churchill had kept that part secret as the Boers had control over the mines. But by October 1900, the British had secured these crucial coal mining areas east of Pretoria, and Churchill then told the assembled voters what had happened. He mentioned the mine manager by name, a resident of Oldham, as it turned out, called Daniel Dewsnap. And lo and behold, someone in the crowd shouted out, His wife's in the gallery! prompting a round of tumultuous applause. Still, Churchill only just managed to secure the votes with a tiny majority. In a curious process at the time, each registered voter could cast two votes, and he gained just enough second votes to beat the liberal opponent. What is really significant is that from this moment, Churchill's political career was in motion. Front benches in the Conservative Party demanded that he join their election rallies. The Conservative leader in the House of Commons, Arthur Balfour, wanted Churchill with him on the platform in Manchester later in October and he was proudly paraded in front of 5 or 6,000 people at a time. Still only 25 years old, the once and future Prime Minister, who would be so important in coming decades, was on his way politically and it was largely thanks to the war in South Africa. While young Winston was being wined and dined, lauded and applauded, back in South Africa the bitter phase of the war was now in full force. The Canadians in particular had been saddled with the onerous task of farm burning and ransacking to the east of Pretoria. These began in earnest in late September and early October in places like Middleburg and Belfast. Yes, there's a Belfast in the eastern Transvaal and other places like Von Fontaine. It was at the latter that the Canadians first began to complain of what they referred to as this disagreeable assignment. A Boer commando had blown up a nearby railway line and so the Canadian dragoons were mobilized to deal the civilians nearby a lesson. The broad fertile Steelpoort valley to the northwest of Belfast, bordered by a rough mountainous region which separated the town from Nooit Gedacht, was a hotbed of small Boer raiding parties. The first two weeks of October 1900 saw Lessard, the camp commander of the Canadians, under extended pressure. Reconnaissance parties and spies constantly reported the formation of two commandos, Louis Butcher's northern commander comprised of around 500 men and armed with a feared long tom, as well as two pom-poms and a smaller artillery piece, and Michael Prinsleur's 1,000 men of the southern commander armed with three field guns and a pom-pom. These commandos' activities kept the station on alert, and the Canadians busy. The Dragoons were camped just outside Belfast, and the regular routine consisted of outpost, patrol and reconnaissance duty within a 30km radius of the town. It was two nights in camp, followed by two nights out of camp, and this became a problem for the Canadians as casualties and illness left them well below full strength. Some troops were also transferred to other units, so by the second week of October, the battalion's strength was listed as 169 men, less than half its authorized strength. It was what was called the special assignments that caused these men the most anguish and was emotionally draining. That was farm burning. The other duty which caused much anguish was the dangerous work of patrolling around the area called Vonderfontein, or Miracle Spring. That was actually 20 kilometres back on the main railway line westwards towards Pretoria. This post was held by a 50-man detachment from A Squadron under Lt. A.H. King and another 50-man detachment under the command of R.E.W. Turner. Patrols from here were constantly attacked by Boer sharpshooters. I'll tell you a little story which features in the work entitled Painting the Map Red, Canada and the South African War by the author Carmen Miller. Four men had been assigned to patrol the nearby Boschport Valley and were riding back to Vonderfontein when they saw what looked like British soldiers on a hill who were beckoning them over, like the spider to the flies. Of course, it was the Boers who then opened fire when the four were around 200 yards away. Privates Archibald Ratcliffe and Daniel McLean Spence died instantly. Private Fred Thornton was critically wounded. The fourth man escaped to alert the garrison. But the Boers disappeared. The Canadians were incensed and made the Boer civilians living in the area attend the burial, where the two blanket-wrapped corpses were placed gently in their graves while the last post was played, and at the same time a Boer baby cried nearby, adding to the surreal event. A short while later, another skirmish took place, which unusually involved two Canadians who were twin brothers. Private Gerald Carter was shot in the thigh and chest after his horse was killed by the Steelport Valley Boers. The men in the camp could not head out to support Gerald, but his twin brother Arthur tried to rush out and save his twin. He had to be restrained in an extremely agitated state. Hours later, the Boers were seen moving close to the camp. Upon investigation, the Canadians found that the wounded Gerald Carter had been brought by the Boers and left on a blanket. He was rushed into the camp, but there was no surgeon. So Captain Turner, the camp commander, decided to operate on the wounded man. His leg wound was not severe, and Turner then snapped open his jackknife and went to work on the bullet in Gerald's chest. After retrieving the round, they poured alcohol into the gaping wound and then covered it with baked bread that served as a poultice. It was almost a miracle. Later in Pretoria, Gerald Carter made a full recovery and eventually went back to his twin brother and the front. That was good news for the Canadians because they were to face a terrible battle in November, which led to three of the four Victoria Crosses that troops from Canada earned in the entire Anglo-Boer War. Next week we'll hear how General Christian de Wet is pushed into a corner, More about the Khaki election and a little more about the Australians, perhaps too, the New Zealanders. And it's time to say a big thank you to a Kiwi called Kevin Jackson, who sent me great pictures of World War memorials in Napier. Please keep these coming. The global interest in this African conflict has been enormous. So with that shameless self-promotion as a parting shot, please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes or head off to abwarpodcast.com, our website. I'll be loading more pictures there this week. So until next week, goodbye.